A tsunami warning is in place for all of Tonga after the eruption of a volcano in the island group within the last half hour. The massive eruption has caused significant damage along the western coast of Tonga's main island. For some of them, I was literally messaging them the day before, talking about random stuff on Facebook and Instagram. And so then to suddenly now lose contact with them so abruptly, um, it was really scary. The port Buildings, roads, completely covered in ash. Buildings and houses are destroyed, they're missing. Tonga's deadly volcanic eruption and subsequent tsunami has killed at least three people and affected tens of thousands of residents. The eruption has been reported as the world's largest in 30 years, sending sonic shockwaves to neighbouring countries and also causing a communication blackout. The eruption was so big it severed Tonga's only fibre optic cable which connects the country to the world. Communications remained largely cut off and that's meant a sleepless night for Tongans in New Zealand, desperate for news of loved ones. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail, how precarious are underwater internet cables? Tonga is one of the, the most risky countries in the world, I think, behind Vanuatu. They're, they're subject to cyclones, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. And is it time to look at other communications options? It was hard when I could see other Tongans in New Zealand who had heard from their families very early on after the volcanic eruption. And yeah, I was very happy, but it also made me really nervous about, okay, if they're hearing and I'm not hearing back, am I preparing myself for the worst? That's Sally Jane Hopgood, the Pacific Communities Editor at The Spin-Off. She describes what it was like straight after she heard about the eruption in Tonga on the 15th of January. I was thinking of my close relations, so that being my dad's siblings and their children, so my first cousins, my aunties, my uncle, um, that's still living in our family home and around Tonga. Thankfully, my mum and her siblings are all scattered around the world, so they're not actually in Tonga, but my mum does have her first cousins, so who are, who are very close with us, who are still in Tonga. So, yeah, my thoughts were immediately thinking of them and hoping they were okay. And how close are some of your relatives to the, the actual eruption? Well, most of them are in town, so in Nukualofa itself, um, mainly in Kolomotua, which is also near Nukualofa, very close to town. Uh, and so they're not very not near the waterfront or the coastal lines of Tonga, but still reports were coming out of the news that Kolomotoa was once one of the villages that were um, severely affected. But later on, uh, I thankfully heard back from my family in Kolomotoa and they're all safe and sound there. But just over the weekend, they were telling us that they're down to the last pot of food because... Uh, my auntie, whose house was not damaged, a lot of her na- neighbours in the village have had to take refuge there, even though they're not necessarily family, uh, because their houses were damaged. And so, and in Tonga, you kind of just take, you know, you can't say no to people who need your help or you, who need a help, you need shelter. So my auntie is now taken on not just uh, my our, our own family, which is quite a big family. Like my dad has twelve siblings, so but she's also taken on other families. There's close to sixty people 60 staying people. in the one house. Six zero, yeah. <laughs> They're just coming and going in her house, um, 
getting lunch, getting dinner because you, they have nowhere else to go or no food in their own houses and a lot of the, the rooms are damaged or the kitchen is not usable. And then there's the ash. Their front yard and just the roofs of their houses, everything is covered in, in ashes. The cars that were parked outside, one of my um, on my mom's side, uh, they stay close to town in Nukualofa, and what they do every day is they try to get as much of their cooking done in the morning. So that includes breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so that they don't have to use the oven later during the day when it gets very hot, um, because they're having to also close their windows and doors so that the ashes won't come inside the house. It's really polluted with ashes, and they can't. Yeah, they're having to try find any chance when it's not windy to then go outside and sweep the grounds, get as much ash away from the house. But yeah, it's proven difficult because it's just not as easy. <laughs> Yeah. Not as easy to get rid of ashes on the ground. Is ash toxic? Yeah, apparently it is. The government are trying to urge families to wear a mask if they're going outside just to avoid um, them, I guess, consuming or taking in the ashes um, because they're, they're most likely are damages to um, that it could lead to in terms of your health. The idea of getting rid of ash, is it burying it or like from what i'm hearing in tonga from my family they're dusting it into piles and then um there are some people in tonga or companies that are actually collecting it but apparently like it also stains so it's it's not just a simple like brushing it's gone you kind of have to brush it a few few times to kind of get you know a decent clean out of the area and then tonga is like a, has a lot of land and you know it's trying to clear like hectares of mm. of ashes especially the ashes that are on the roofs of houses um yeah it's it's taken them days and yeah before they even get to like restoring or rebuilding houses so yeah it's a tough job they're doing right now have there been any other past events that have been comparable i mean i, mean, I know there's been um cyclones and stuff like that but most of the time the comms has been okay, right? Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's anything you could compare what's happened um, to Tonga recently because in the past it's been cyclones, as you said, and most of the time they don't damage the like underwater sea cable or the um, power lines there. That cable links Tonga and Fiji, and Tonga is connected to the rest of the world by this one single cable, which is about the width of a garden hose. Limited communications have been restored to Tonga with the local telecommunications provider Digicel saying international calls are now possible, but they do warn full services won't be up and running until the country's severed undersea cable is repaired. My understanding is the repair time based on forecasts is around the first week of February. That's Philip Henderson, the Vice President of the Pacific Islands Telecommunications Association. He's also the Chief Executive of Vodafone Cook Islands. By his estimates, Tonga's internet cable will only be back up and running three weeks after it first broke. And a lot of that is down to the fact that the island is so remote. The ship probably takes a week of steaming time because of the, 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 you know, the, the spirit of the Pacific Ocean. When you say steaming, do you mean travelling? Travelling time, yeah. So a lot, okay. for the Pacific, a lot of the time is taken up by, by, by steaming. Um, but the actual repair time is, because they're very efficient and they're very professional, can, you know, they can repair a cable in, in a matter of days hmm. once they've located the point of break. 
Do you know like whereabouts the cable is broken? Um, apparently this time uh, it's broken in two places at about 37 kilometres offshore, but that information is fairly sketchy. It will be confirmed once the cable repair ship arrives on site and does a proper a survey of where the break is. But, you know, the, the, there's testing tools that can identify uh, fairly accurately where, where the break has occurred. So what is actually required to repair something like that? Obviously, I guess it does depend on what the break is like, but if generally, is it something quite easy to repair? It's a specialised service and you have specialised ships. So the Pacific Ocean is a very big ocean um, and they have one re- one cable repair ship um, that's funded to be in the region. Traditionally, it used to be in Fiji, but I believe it it's sits around New Caledonia nowadays. Um, they would locate it and they would haul it up um, and conduct the repair on the boat. Typically, everything is shut down and um, the repairs are effective on a dead cable. Right? And once that's once that's repaired, then they light up the cable again and drop the cable down onto the ocean bed and test it and then um, and put it back into service. Because with these cables, they're not like bolted down or anything like that. That's kind of just lying on the ocean floor. That, that's correct. At ocean de- at the depths they are, it's they just they they laid in a on a surveyed route, which um, ensures that they're not across trenches and and they like to stress them. Um, mm-hmm. So first part of a cable laying project is to survey the ocean floor and then design the route along the most uh, preferred route, safest route, and easiest to access if you do have a cable break. But typically, cables are broken closer to shore. So as you bring in the cable to a to a landing station, you make sure that it's the route is free from threats. Like boat anchors are probably the biggest cause of cable breakage, dragging okay. uh, boat dragging it, hooking up a cable. Those are the most common causes of cable breaks, and that was the cause of the cable break in, for the Tonga cable in 2019. Tonga's internet cable was put in nine years ago. It connects to Fiji, which in turn connects to other countries through the Southern Cross cable network. The cables that carry the internet are made of glass fibre. Of course, there's layers of protection and armouring around it. And to make sure there's enough power to send signals all the way to the other end of the cable, boosters, known as repeaters, are put in at different points. New Zealand currently has three internet cables, with a fourth expected to be up and running later this year and plans for a fifth. There's also a cable that connects the North and South Island. So just how easily do they break? If you look at how often cables are damaged or broken, it's actually a lot more than, than people realise. But often the cable breaks are quite quick to repair because you have, you have areas where there's a lot of cables in a small area. So the cable shops can get to those and repair them very quickly. But across the Pacific... Tonga is one of the, the most risky countries in the world, I think, behind Vanuatu. They're, they're subject to cyclones, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. There's not too many countries in the world that have that same level of risk from natural disasters. So Tonga... Being one of the, the most risky countries is probably exhibiting the effects of that risk. They've had two cable breaks in three years. Mm. Um, but you don't see the same level of um, damage to other cables in the region. So Tonga is probably just the, probably the worst example. Yeah. Um, but typically cables are very reliable. They don't break without um, some sort of external force. That Sometimes the electronics and the repeaters along the cable route might fail um, and, and 
the ships can go in and pull them up and replace them. But cables are, f- are normally very secure. So do you think internet cables are the best way of getting internet to the Pacific region? They are long-term the most cost-effective, um, okay. and it gives you the maximum capacity and the most reliability. But cables do get broken, as we've seen in Tonga, and across the Pacific, the cost of building is is on a per capita basis exorbitant. So a rule of thumb is about $20,000 US per kilometre. And in the Pacific, every cable is a long cable. So what about satellites? Uh, definitely satellites have been an option for many years and where, where cables have not been economic, uh, given the size of the population or the demand, satellites are a very viable option. They're also a very, very viable option as a cable redundancy if you don't have a second cable. Can you just explain to me what a redundancy cable, what, what exactly that means? Okay, so quite often if you, you'd have a redundant route, so you'd have a cable coming in at a specific point and the most, the, the most risky part of the cable is, is the, the cable that's approaching land. Um, so you would build another cable that will, will connect onto the island at another point. Okay. So you have this spacing between the two cables. So if one cable gets damaged by an anchor or, or a, um, a seismic event like Thomas had, you know, the, intent, the, the plan is that the second cable may not have the same problem. So many of the Pacific Island countries where they have a single cable and a single point of failure do carry satellite redundancy. In the Cooks, we do the same. We, we, we have a third of our international connectivity is backed up by satellite. So if we have a cable break on our monitor cable, we won't have the same level of blackout that we've seen from Tonga. We can actually pick up a lot of the, the cable traffic on our satellite backup service. Are satellites more expensive? There's been a lot of uh, development in satellite technology in the last five years, and you've got a, a lot of the big players in, in global commerce playing in space, you've got Elon Musk, um, Bezos on Amazon, or, or there's a lot of technology, uh, R&D and investment being applied for in satellite and space. So the technology has jumped in leaps and bounds bounds in the last few years. Um, and the cost per megabyte is come, coming down quite drastically. So you're seeing satellites now competing in terms of pricing very close to what you can get the capacity on cables for. Right. So do you think that might be the future? No, I still believe submarine cables are the future. They're, they're the most reliable, but um, satellite still has a lot to play in, in the Pacific, particularly because satellite is a point-to-multipoint technology. One satellite can illuminate hundreds of islands, whereas a cable is a point-to-point. You actually have to physical, physically build a cable to land on each island, mm. and that's where it starts to become very um, challenging from an economics perspective. So definitely satellites have a big part to play in connecting the island nations throughout the Pacific, um, and they'll connect places where cables wouldn't even dream of going to. Mm. So why do you still think cables are the future then, if, if satellites can do all these things and, and have such a widespread kind of reach? Yeah, so they, 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 they'll coexist. So where you have high capacity and high demand and a concentration of, of of population, then a submarine cable can be the most effective. Right. Um, but as you go out to a very remote island with uh, a couple of hundred people or sub-100 people, then a satellite solution is, is much more cost-effective because on the ground you only need a dish and some very cheap electronics to be able to extend that capacity. 
you basically pay a monthly usage fee, very similar to a broadband plan. So once a oh, month you pay uh, X number of dollars to have that capacity. So it's low risk from a from a capex cap expense, but the subscription or the yeah the subscription rate is is quite high, um, and that's where cable is actually winning along. Um, you, you, your monthly charge will be significantly less than what you'd pay on a satellite system, but you have to deal with the upfront capex cost to build it. And there's a complicating factor. Ash can also cause signal problems for satellites if it falls on the satellite dish. We have two Navy ships on their way now to Tonga. The ship carrying 250,000 litres of water, life-saving essentials and desalination equipment docked in the capital last week. Now, it's unloaded all its cargo, which is now waiting for distribution after a 72-hour quarantine period. The government's pledged so far $3 million to assist Tonga. There's been requests for water, food, uh, supplies to help with the clean-up. My family and I here in Auckland got together over the weekend to just fill up drums or barrels full of foods to help our family and feed themselves as well as all the vulnerable families that are just nearby them. Uh, and so, yeah, they were saying they're down to their last pot of food and they serving just did a nice, like basic food, you know, chicken and rice or whatever they can with what they have. And the ship that our barrels of food that we had donated is going to take about a week to get there. So I'm, yeah, I'm really, I don't know how they're going to get by these next few days until the ship from New Zealand arrives to them. Mm. And then even then it takes a couple of days to process because it's so much donation um, heading over to Tonga. So, yeah, I think... um, yeah, I, I really, I think they're just going to have to rely on what's around in their garden and the livestock that's survived um, these past couple of days. Uh, but yeah, it's really dire, the situation there. Sally Jane Hopgood says if people want to help, organisations like Tear Fund, Red Cross and Caritas New Zealand are asking for donations. They have been doing this kind of work for many years and they've set up partners in Tonga so they'll be able to facilitate the money through and send aid that's needed. And in the past, is uh, Tonga and many Pacific countries receive, would receive donations such as clothes and equipment, but that's not necessarily what they need. I hope that government sees us as a way of future-proofing themselves in the future because everything is online now. And in the past, I know with um, cyclones, they have damaged buildings. There's been a lot of talks, um, a lot of initiatives around the country and even overseas, like New Zealand and Australia, setting up ways to then, you know, once, because a cyclone is always ha- happens every year, when it happens, what's the next phase? We're going to rebuild using these resources. I know a lot of, um, there's an initiative here in, East, in Auckland where they've been saving construction material for Tonga because they know that there'll most likely be a cyclone in the future. So I hope then they'll take that same initiative but apply it to um, internet cables and the power lines, finding other solutions rather than just having that one cable under the water to um, rely on, uh, yeah, to avoid um, Tonga losing connection from the world. One of the problems that a lot of the telcos have in the Pacific is that 
where we have a single point of failure, often building redundancy, the business case doesn't stack up. Mm. So, and, and I, I could guess that when, when Tonga was looking at redundancy and they looked at having satellite backup, it was very hard to, to get the business case approved. And now you have a system where your single point of failure occurs. Um, you have no backup. So a lot of the telcos need to really look at Tonga's experience and say just how much uh, risk are we willing to take to have a brownout when our cables are, are broken. And they will break at some stage. It might, may, you know, it could be in the next 15 years because the cable's got a life you know, a life of 30 to 40 years if it's maintained correctly. And in the case of the Cook Islands, we've, we've looked at the risk and we say, well, we're prepared to fund that. Uh, and we've invested in having satellite backup capacity. And hopefully we don't have a, have a situation where we, have, we lose both the satellite ground station and the fiber optic cable landing station at the same time. Mm. Um, the likelihood of that is, uh, touch wood, is, is highly unlikely, but you never know. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and is a joint newsroom and RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every weekday on any podcast platform. Adrian Holley engineered this episode, Alexia Russell produced it, and thanks to Sella Jane Hopgood and Philip Henderson. Matewa.